Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to our place of study, which is in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. And today, we continue with our parables series. We have two more Sundays to go, this Sunday and one more Sunday to go. Uh, which means I think we've been in the parables for 17 weeks uh, come next week. And our aim these many weeks has been singular, it's been focused, to look at reality through the eyes of Jesus. That there is one reality in this world. It's what we see every night on the news. (laughs) That's reality. But Jesus, which he refers to as the kingdom of God, says there's another reality breaking into this reality. It's one that is deeper and wider and longer and more eternal, and it's the real stuff. You might think of it this way. If there is a reality, then there is a reality that is really real, and it's breaking through all the other stuff. And it's called the kingdom of God. And he teaches about that arrangement, that reality through parables. And today we have two more to examine. Matthew chapter 14, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation... And is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or or what king, what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first to consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, Then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the reading of the sacred, trusted, and disturbing word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, with your spirit in us and among us, 
we confess to you that there is a transformation that's possible this day that every one of us needs. Here we have your word before us and we have your spirit among us desiring to transform us more and more into the image of your son because this, this is what we, we believe the world needs. So transform us. Here's our heart, Lord. <laughs> Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen. In the past seven, ten days, what has it cost you to follow Jesus? In the past month, six months, what has it cost you to follow Jesus? And you say, well, hang on, time out, Sean. Isn't salvation free? I mean, isn't the love of God free? That's not something that we could purchase, right? Absolutely. I mean, a thousand times, yes, it's free. What we say around here, in case you're new, uh, what we say around here from time to time, if you're new to the faith, you need to understand the love of God works like this. God is crazy about you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't earn and you can't spurn the love of God. It is the love of God, period, end of the story. And that love of God is free. It's grace. And every mortal on the planet receives it. This is why when it comes to salvation, no, you can't earn it. No, no. The reformer Martin Luther was right about it. When he said, it, when it comes to salvation, it's sola gratia. It's, it's, it's grace alone. And when we understand that grace and respond to it, our salvation is sola fide. It is faith alone. It's not something we do. The reformer was right about it, but he was right about it because before him, before he was right about it, the apostle Paul was right about it when he said in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one will boast. See, the gift of God's love is free. And the apostle was right about it, but before the apostle was right about it, Jesus was right about it when he said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's it. But here's the rub. <laughs> this is where we take a hard turn. Yes, the gift of God's love is free and it's abundant and it's available to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But here's the thing. If you encounter the love of God, you can't stay the same. If you encounter the love of God, if it is actually the love of God, there's a transformational power about the love of God that means you will no longer ever be able to think or feel or behave or live in the same way because you are thinking and living and feeling and behaving through the agency of Christ's own spirit living in you. So, 
The love of God is free, but that love is it's out to change you and transform you. And that transformed life, that rearranged life, the new arrangement of how we exist means that when you are in the context of the world around you, you will absolutely, if you live right, be in stark contrast to the world outside you. There will be something about you that will look a little crazy. There will be something about you that will look absolutely foolish. Because we do crazy things when we are changed by the love of God. We do things that make no sense at all if we've really been encountered by the love of God. You know what we do? We feed hungry people. And when we see thirsty people, we give them a drink and we care for the poor and we never neglect the widow, orphan, or the resident alien staying in our borders. You know what we do if our lives have been transformed by Jesus? We do crazy things like love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That is just insane. We do these things not because they're good ideas, not because they make good policy. We do these things because the master commanded us to do them. We do these things because he did them and said, if you want to follow me, that's where I'm going. Take up your cross and follow me. What has following Jesus cost you? The apostle Paul said we look foolish, you know. He said it this way. In Ephesians, or 2 Corinthians, he said, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I, I, I want to even take it a step further. Paul's message is this message of Christ being crucified, dying on the cross for our sins. That's, that's considered foolish enough to a dying world, right? But I take it a step forth, further. It's not just the message of the cross that's foolishness to a dying world. It's the way of the cross, or what we call the cruciform life, choosing to align our lives with the way in which Jesus aligned his life. The cruciform life is a life that wakes up each day and says, how can I empty my rights for the sake of somebody else? How can I pour out my life rather than fill it up. The cruciform life is seen as foolish to the world because I'm going to tell you, you and I struggle with this more than maybe many cultures in many centuries because you and I live at a time when we have so merged our American identity with our Christian identity that they have become so fused we barely know how to distinguish them. For example, the American dream. The message of the American dream, let me just put it this way, the gospel of the American dream is this. If you're an individual who works hard enough, you can start here and end up here, right? 
You can start small and end up big. You can start weak and become strong because if you work hard enough and you try hard enough and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the power of individual um, stick-to-itiveness, right? That's the, the American dream and that's gospel. That's good news because that's how we build our identity as a powerful nation. And, and, and I just want to say to sisters and brothers in this room, let us not forget that while that might be absolutely true, It is the stark contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says the goal is to move from being great to being small. Of taking our power and emptying it out for the sake of another. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not move from small to big, from little to great. It moves from great to weak. For this reason, we read about it in 2 Corinthians. This is the way it it reads there. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. But guess what? The, the, The story doesn't stop there. He doesn't become poor so that we can become rich and stay rich in our soul, rich in our experience, rich but so that following him we may live after his example and become poor for another to become rich so that they may become poor and then another become rich. It's the resurrection pattern, the paschal mystery. This is why in Philippians 2, that great hymn of the first century, we read these words. Let the same mind, same perspective, same outlook, same objective be in you, That was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let us not forget that in your newly arranged life, if you have encountered the love of God, it means that you are transformed. And if you are transformed, your rearranged life will absolutely put you in the minority opinion. Your rearranged life will put you automatically in a place where you look like your values are in stark contrast to a world who aims to do nothing but build up, 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 greater, 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 greater. Because we follow the one who was great and became nothing that we might be redeemed. And if Jesus says, you can't be my, my disciple unless you're, unless you're with that, the question is, what has it cost you to follow Jesus? So he opens up this, this parable with some very difficult words. They're hard for us to hear. He begins the parable before he tells these two twin parables, the parable of the tower and the parable of the, the warring king, with one of the hard sayings of Jesus. This is how, how it reads. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now, can we just talk about that a minute? I mean, give me a break, Jesus. Really? 
Jesus would not win the family values ticket. Let's just put it that way. Jesus is after something else here. So as soon as this is read, teenagers across the land says, oh, great that I'm with Jesus because I can't stand mom and dad this week. You know? No, that's not it. He uses what's known as Semitic hyperbole in the first century, a Semitic uh, tool of language and argument in which in order to make one argument, you say something that highlights another. In other words, I want you to love me so deeply and with such a high love that whatever is in second place is so far removed from the high love with which you love me that it's as if you hate them. Make sense? This is a, a call to ask ourselves, is there anything, anyone at all that we esteem and love more than we love Jesus Christ? Is there anything that we pursue, any desire that we have, a career? Is there any allegiance that we have to it and a career, a goal, an ego, an identity, a, a political party? Is there anything that we esteem higher than our absolute adoration of Jesus Christ? Because until we can esteem him to that level, we can't begin to think about truly being called disciples. So he says, look, there is a cost to this. He says, what about the, the guy who builds a tower? And he gives the first of the two parables. He says, which one of you, if intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to com complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, you know we lived in Orlando before we came here, right? This is a picture of the, uh, the uh, uh, Majesty Building uh, just outside Orlando. Have you seen this building? Some of you know what this building is. The Majesty Building is the future home of a TV broadcast for Christian TV, Christian TV network called the Super Channel or something. And it is the tallest structure between Orlando and Daytona Beach. They began construction on this building in 2001. And if you take a good close look at a current picture, it's still not finished. In fact, the project has not been ceased. It's still underway. But because they didn't have the funds ready ahead of time, because they didn't have a plan, they build a little bit and pay for a little bit, build for a little bit. It's 15 years they're underway. And I can tell you, having been a resident of Orlando, that whole enterprise, that whole project is seen with ridicule. In fact, there's a name for it. Do you know what we called it in Orlando? The eyesore on I-4. <laughs> Not kidding. And I think to myself about this parable that Jesus says, you know, this unfinished tower. Who's going to start a tower and not finish it? And, and, and it makes me wonder, are some of us living our spiritual lives in the same way? Because in the very beginning, we lay a foundation and there's great enthusiasm. I mean, I'm thinking about the incredible enthusiasm uh, of Cindy uh, and the baptism that we experienced early. This, this may be early on in your faith life. You began and you laid a foundation and you put up the, 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 the scaffolding of faith. And then something happened. And you hit a roadblock and something fell apart and, and it was so hard that you didn't know what to do about it and didn't know how to pick up the pieces and you didn't know that maybe that's part of the Christian faith and thought, well, surely I would have been protected from all these hardships, but still you got sick anyway or she left 
you anyway? Or the business folded anyway? And it was a time to reach deep into something that had been planted in you. But during that time, because you were not prepared to know that this is going to be tough, there was a a suspension of the project. And Jesus says, know this, if you follow me, there is a cost that comes. Because your newly arranged life will stand in stark contrast to the world around you, and that will cost you something. And he goes on to say, what about a warring king, the king who goes to war? He says, what king, if you're going to wage war, goes against another king? Will he not sit down first and consider whether he, he with 10,000 troops, uh, can oppose the one coming after him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. No king, if he goes into battle, seeing that he's going to be out man two to one, will not first sit down and and calculate. This will be high stakes, high stakes, and have to decide if it's worth it. And Jesus is saying, there is nothing with greater stakes, nothing than your decision to follow me. And if you follow me, know this, there is a cost. So come on, follow But don't forget your cross when you come. And he ends with that tragic, desperate, down, deep, demoralizing tone to the last verse. You cannot be my disciple. The very last verse says, servants are not greater than your master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I have said these things to you so that you may be, my peace may be in you. And in this world, you will face trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is clear that the invitation is free, but the newly arranged life will mean that you will stand in stark contrast if you're living it truly. Can I tell you about somebody who lived it truly? Do you know when we used to do this well? I mean, when we used to unapologetically live in stark contrast to the powers around us. Do you know when we used to do this well? And none of us in this room were alive at the time. It was in the first 300 years of the Christian movement. Now, some of you may have been. I'm not going to check your... The first 300 years of the Christian movement. Did you know that in the first 300 years of Christianity, there was one identifying trait, one marker that identified the true followers of Jesus from everybody else? It's what I'm going to refer to today as the martyr mind. The martyr mind. For the first 300 years, those who were steeped in the ways of Jesus understood they lived in a culture that is not meant to be, it's not a Christian culture. But they're living in that culture like salt and light. And they knew that it came with a cost. And many of them paid with their lives. And nothing was more central to what it meant to be a Christian than your willingness to lay down your life. To forfeit, surrender your rights and comforts and privileges in order to give witness to the power of God's love. Which works in weakness and not in strength. And there was one young woman named Perpetua. Perpetua had a friend named Felicity. 
She was a handmaiden uh, to someone else, but a friend of Perpetua. Perpetua wrote a journal. She was a martyr. She was martyred in the year 202 or 203. We don't know for sure, but we kept, we have her journal. We actually have uh, her own words of her last few weeks alive. She was imprisoned. She and about seven, eight other catechumens, they called them, those who were preparing to become baptized. They were new Christians, and they were sent to prison because of their faith. They were, of course, like many others, asked to recant their faith, to deny their faith in Christ and commit their allegiance to the emperor. Perpetua was 22 years old, 22. And she had an infant son whom she was still nursing. And there is a recording of the anguish between she and her family over the choice that she was making to uh, relentlessly follow Christ at all costs. Her father comes down to the jail and her father pleads with her and she writes about it. This is what she says. While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, I said, do you see this vase here? For example, or water pot or whatever which I love. I mean, she's talking like she's in a diary, right? She's talking like a diary, and she's like the very first millennial. She's like a millennial, but like the first millennial, because she's like, Father, do you see this vase here or water part or whatever, you know, whatever? He says, yes, I do. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. And he left with great anguish and anger. And for the next several days, on the way to the day of her martyrdom, to the day of the arena, when she and her friends would be thrown to a bear, a bull, and a lion, when they would face the gladiators and the tip of the sword, On the way there, she records the several visits that her family comes to see her at the the prison. The next time her mother comes, and then her brother, who is also a young Christian but has not been declared or arrested. And then again, her father, two or three times, and with one one visit, pulling the the whiskers from his, his beard in anguish, pleading with her, do you know what you're doing? Consider your mother, literally. He said, look what you're doing to your mother or your brother. He will follow your example. Consider him. And then on the day of trial, she's on the the trial stand and his father, her father, in a dramatic flare, walks up, grabs her off of the stand, pulls her down and lifts up her infant son and says, consider your baby. Look what you're doing to your child. And still, she remains resolute. With two or three days left before their execution, her friend, Felicitas, or Felicitas, uh, 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 Felicity, thank you. Felicity is pregnant. She's pregnant, very pregnant. I mean, mean, you're either pregnant or not, I know, but I mean, she was very pregnant, eight months pregnant, and she was grieved. Grieved because she could not be executed with her friends. 
grieved because the law (laughs) prevented the government from executing her while she was pregnant. She was arrested, but they couldn't execute her because she was pregnant. So that night, the Christians devout in their allegiance to the one true Lord gathered together and prayed that Felicity would give birth. And she gave birth and was able to be martyred with the rest of her friends. On the day of the execution, the bear is loosed, the leopard is loosed, the, the uh, bull is loosed, and they are gored. Some die and some don't. And those who don't are run through with a gladiator sword, and still Perpetua remains alive and bleeding, dying. A gladiator comes to her. It's recorded by an editor who finishes her book. An eyewitness account. The gladiator comes and his hand is shaking because he's new and nervous and he does not believe in what's happening. And in great faith and courage, you know she does? We're told that she takes the blade of the sword and places it near her neck steadying the nerves of the gladiator because she knows that she's encountered the love that would not let her go. And in that encounter, there was a transformation that meant she was intended to stand in stark contrast to all the ways of this world and nothing could rattle her when we give ourselves completely to the way of the cross. We become unflappable, unflappable in the face of danger. Where has it cost you something to follow Christ? Let's bow together. God, if we could just confess to you that the call is bigger than any of us. And most of the time, we fail miserably at living up to the call to live like you and love like you and to behave and believe and be like you in this world. Because our confession is this, we are drawn and quartered in so many directions that we are tugged into other allegiances that are in stark contrast to yours. Help us this day to see the difference and give us the strength to confess the sin. Free us this day that we might follow you regardless of where the journey takes us. Lord, if there is somebody in this room today who desires to respond to you, if there is this tug, this Godward tug in their heart, move them this day. Give them the courage to move out among sisters and brothers in the faith who have been there and who have done that and who will welcome them in with great love. Because our highest confession is this, Lord, while we may love many things in this world, While we may pursue and desire many things, we don't want to pursue or desire anything higher than the pursuit of our love for you. 
Renew that love today. Strengthen us from the deepest place today that we may demonstrate to this world there's something different about us and it's real. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.